You're listening to Music Tectonics. Hey there, and welcome to Music Tectonics, the podcast where we explore the intersection of music and tech. I'm Trister Neuer Jaeger, your host for this episode and Chief Strategy Officer at Rock, Paper, Scissors, the music innovation PR firm. Today I'm speaking with Chris Arend, the CEO of the Mechanical Licensing Collective, the MLC for short. The MLC is the nonprofit in charge of administering so-called digital mechanicals in the United States. Its mission was charted by the Music Modernization Act of 2018. The MLC collects both usage data and payments from digital music services, then pays out royalties to registered members, the songwriters, publishers, or other rights holders behind the compositions involved in each and every American stream. Chris has a legal background at Warner, Rhino Records, and Sony BMG, and thus he has a unique perspective on many aspects of the industry, some of which have direct implications for music innovators. Hi, Chris. Thanks so much for taking time to talk to me today. Hi, Trisha. Great to be here. So first up, how do you explain exactly what you do to someone you meet at a non-music industry dinner party? I guess it depends on whether I want to continue the conversation or get out of the conversation. Well, let's start with that. When you want to shut someone down, what do you do? <laughs> uh, uh, no, I, either way, um, I, I generally start by saying I work on the business side of the music business um, because that's always, um, I think, for, for folks, an important um, thing to understand. If you say you work in the music industry, a lot of folks will immediately ask, do you know so-and-so? And then they fill in the blank with their favorite artist and while I've had the privilege of working um, and getting to know personally a number of artists and writers, um, generally speaking, on the business side, we're dealing with lawyers and business managers and accountants. So I want to shut that down right away. And, and do you know, know Do you know Lady Gaga's accountant? Someone Someone says and starts trembling with delight. <laughs> right. and so if, if the person is an accountant, that might be more exciting. For exactly. Them. But generally, right, for for most folks, um, business side frames expectations for what follows. Then I explain that my company um, collects and distributes a set of royalties that are due when songs are streamed on digital services like Spotify and Apple Music, and we pay those royalties to the songwriters and music publishers. And I try to keep it simple. That's great. Well, it's not always simple, but I'm going to give you a little bit of a challenge here. I would love if you could give us a speed round explanation of what mechanicals are and why there has been such a challenge in the past to administer them um, and why, why this is particularly challenging in the digital era. So that, that question definitely gets into the complexities. Um, first, mechanicals. Uh, I, I often, when talking with creators um, or others who may not be as familiar with the business side, will start by reminding them that in the music business, there are two key sets of copyrights um, that we deal with. One for the songs that songwriters write and one for the recordings that performers make when they perform those songs. So mechanical rights refers to a set of rights on the song side of the business, and it's specifically the right to reproduce and distribute a song. So that's the mechanical right. Sometimes I'll distinguish that between the public performance right also on the song side. That's the right that's implicated when songs are performed on the radio or at a venue, um, a bar, a restaurant, things like that. Um, and a lot of folks know about the, the performing rights organizations that administer those rights, groups like ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC, to name three. Um, in terms of the challenge, the challenge really stems from two things. Um, first, when 
uh, a fan listens to music on a streaming service or any digital service, they generally do so by selecting a specific sound recording. So, you know, think about some of the great songs in, in our history that have been recorded dozens and dozens of times. Um, when you go to listen to a song on a streaming service, you have to pick a specific version of that song. And, um, and so all the data that is initially created when that stream occurs is keyed to the sound recording. That makes it challenging for folks like the MLC who pay royalties on the song side of the business because we've uh, essentially got to make a connection between the sound recording that was streamed and the song that that sound recording features. And uh, the data for the song may not be as clear or complete or as accurate as the data for the sound recording that someone selects. That process of making that connection is what we call matching. And that is a fundamental part of what the MLC and any organization that administers rights on the publishing side of the business um, performs. So how have you helped tame some of this complexity for songwriters? How have you set things up so that processes like matching can happen with more efficiency and uh, accuracy? Sure. Well, the matching um, that we do is really a behind-the-scenes process, um, at least in the first instance. And an added challenge is that there are now more than 100 million sound recordings available on these digital services. Uh, The MLC has more than 30 million songs in our database. So we're performing that matching uh, process every month on a massive scale. Um, But for songwriters, um, what we do to try to help make this uh, less complex Uh, We start with outreach and education. Um, That's really important, trying to explain how this all works in in simple conceptual terms that don't get into the details of metadata or throw a lot of terms or complicated identifiers at folks, Um, not because those don't have value, but like any complicated subject, it helps if you start bigger picture and get people aligned on the bigger picture rather than flood them with details. Um, so we, um, we focus a lot on outreach and education, and uh, we've created a number of infographics, explainer videos, um, and other resources that are available on our, uh, our website that help uh, creators understand how this all works, what the MLC does, um, and how they can interact with us. Um, on the outreach front, we've done hundreds and hundreds of webinars in the last couple of years since we got up and running. We have um, connected with tens of thousands of participants on those webinars. We've now gone to live events um, and have done upwards of 100 live events. So, you know, constantly being out in the, in the world, interacting directly with creators and, um, and really trying to um, promote that med- message of education. That, that's where we start. Once someone becomes a member, then we have uh, a number of tools that are really helpful for them. Um, to use both to see um, more of the data we have for their songs and then help them take actions um, that will help us do our job more effectively. So for example, we have a matching tool. That matching tool lets any member search all of the unmatched royalties that we've accumulated, those royalties where we were not able to make the connection between the sound recording and the song. And they can then um, look at that data and see if they recognize it as relating to one of their songs. If they do, they can propose a match. And if we um, review that match and we agree with them that that's the right match, then we make it and they get paid. 
So uh, putting our members in a position where they can see the data um, and then act on it in some meaningful way is the second part of the, the, the process for us. And then the last one is service. And you know, we, we often say service is at the heart of everything we do. Um, we really um, emphasize service in all of our operations, but in particular, our support team. We have provided one-on-one -on -one support to um, tens of thousands of people. Um, we regularly field um, several thousand inquiries a month. Um, and we do that in order to make sure that once someone has seen the information about the MLC, once they become a member, um, regardless of where they are in their journey, they've got that ability to speak with one of us or communicate with one of us one-on-one -on -one to answer any questions they have. That's awesome. So thanks for that basic introduction to the MLC. We're going to get into more of the details and the exciting developments um, and, and hear more of your perspective on that, Chris, in just a second. We interrupt this episode of Music Tectonics because I had another conversation at NAM, the big musical instrument mecca, that uh, we wanted to share with you in another episode. So we're going to share it with you here. Back to the NAM floor. Hey, this is Matt Cannon. I'm the co-founder and chief growth officer with Jamstick. Jamstick. Okay, I've heard it. I've seen it. Why don't you describe to our uh, podcast audience what it is? Yeah, so the Jamstick is a modern MIDI guitar with a full 24 fret electric guitar functionality, but built in MIDI that you can just plug and play and work with any digital audio workstation, uh, mobile app. And essentially what we've done is we've given guitarists the creative outlet that piano players have had for years. So now they have access to any sound, any synthesized sound, uh, recording digitally, songwriting, so it's a fantastic tool for music production and playing around and, and beyond. When you first look at a jam stick, in what ways does it look different from an electric guitar? So the only difference you're going to notice right now, other than the jam stick logo, is our hexaphonic pickup. So we've got a special MIDI pickup uh, just between the bridge pickup and the bridge. And that's doing the special uh, analog to digital uh, pitch translation. So you're not going to see, I guess, I guess the bigger difference is what's inside the guitar. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So what are we not seeing that, that does cool stuff? So what you're not seeing is the onboard processing. So we've got, uh, you know, a fancy new chipset that's doing thousands of calculations a second to translate that analog sound into digital MIDI data. And that happens in near real time. So the latency, everyone always asks, is there latency? And we've got it down to about as low as is physically possible. So to a musician's ear, it's going to sound like they're playing a regular guitar, but yet they've got the full spectrum of any digital sound at their fingertips. Gotcha. And yeah. then there, there's, is there an external software component to it as well? That's right. So we built our own software in-house too. Uh, we built our own VST called the Jamstick Creator. So that's a standalone piece of software or a plug-in for uh, any DAW out there. Nice. Okay, so now that we got some of that technical stuff out, uh, what are some of the cool things you can do with it, or what are your some of your, Matt? What are some of your favorite things you've seen done with a Jamstick? Yeah, that's a great question, and we're always surprised by all the use cases we we hear from folks that come through the show and and we see out online. Um, so one, we've got people that are composers. You know, if you don't play keyboard, you're hunting and pecking on with the mouse, and you're entering MIDI manually. But now guitarists who want to produce or, or compose 
can play with the instrument that they speak, you know. Um, so for songwriting, uh, being able to just choose any sound has been a game changer. Uh, for producers, you know, there's a number of producers that are picking this up that are writing Grammy award-winning tracks for big artists. And it's, it's been one of the most versatile studio instruments, I think, to come to the scene in a number of years. That's amazing. Yeah. Is there anything else you could do with the software that you couldn't do with a normal guitar that, uh, beyond just the, uh, the, the changing up the sounds, using different sounds, adding in the, the MIDI input for the sounds themselves? Oh, for sure, for sure. Well, I mean, you can choose whatever tuning you want digitally. You can octave up, octave down. Um, you could actually layer as many sounds as you want. You know, in our software itself, you can come up with your own presets. So you could have sampled instruments paired with some synthesized instruments. You could add any number of effects on top, wow. reverb, distortion, delay, you know, you name it. And if you've already got your favorite software, MIDI software, you just plug and play and, and go to town with a guitar format. Did I hear correctly that there's a notation component? So there is a notation component. Um, you know, you can use the notation in Logic Pro. Uh, you can also use Guitar Pro to enter MIDI step by step. And we're constantly looking for ways to improve that experience and partner with other software developers uh, to streamline it for our customers too. Awesome. Yeah. Is, is, have you seen any use cases in live music yet? Yeah, so there's a few pioneers getting out there with it. You know, we've we've been so ready for that. Yeah, because I'm sure. we're, we imagine what DJs are gonna pull out a guitar and, and blow the minds of the crowd. You know, um, so we're starting to see some experimental users getting out there with it. Um, we think with the new headstock unit, we're gonna see that pop up even more. Um, you know, because it's the tuning's a little bit easier to adjust live when you're on stage and and stuff like that and. And I think the world's a little bit more ready for it. Yeah, you know. So this is this is so cool to hear about everything you've done. I can really see that you've made a lot of progress along the way to get to a place where there's so much versatility here, and there's mm -hmm. these. You can just imagine these use cases emerging in the future that you can't even predict, and that's like yeah. that's a great sign of success. Like you might have mm -hmm. thought it was going to do one thing, and next thing you know, it just it's a platform that becomes other things. Yeah. I'm curious to hear from you. One last question. Where do you think music's going to go in the next five to ten years as things like the Jamstick become more uh, commonly known and uh, people start mm -hmm. trying new form factors and new technology like the one you have? Yeah, that's a fun question. That's a fun question. I mean, you can imagine somebody with a Jamstick who's got the MIDI controlling the entire light show for an immersive experience, you know? Um, you can see other different sensors being implemented in it so that you know, there could be proximity sensors, there could be interaction between the crowd um, in terms of, you know, the merging of technology and instrumentation. Uh, it, you know, the opportunities are kind of endless. Yeah. And what I always say is like, we were never out to replace the guitar. We just wanted to amplify the capability of the instrument and, you know, dance the dance with technology into the future. Um, in as creative a fun way as we can. Perfect, Matt. Thanks so much for taking the time. Let's go get a demo. Let's get that demo. Thanks, Dimitri. Thank you.
Right, we're back here with Chris, the CEO of the MLC, and now we get to talk about a subject that has been a, a point of confusion and difficulty for quite some time in the industry, the mysterious black box. So the MLC has been doing some really interesting things in this area. Um, at the start of 2021, as the MLC got rolling, it set up monthly payment cycles and a bunch of other tools for various stakeholders in the industry, as Chris just explained. And as you can see on their website, there's a lot going on there. So I'll let you check that out, uh, listeners. But recently, Chris, you've made some of the first payments of historically unpaid royalties, which you received from the DSPs back in February 2021. And this is what we're talking about in this instance when we talk about the Black box. So I love how you put uh, you put it. You, you've been talking about how you've been illuminating the black box, which is very poetic. <laughs> I personally love it. Um, but what exactly does this mean? And what is EMLC doing to illuminate this black box? Sure. Um, well, maybe it's worth making the point that the black box as a concept is not unique to the MLC or the mechanical space. Oh, yeah. Um, everywhere in the industry, where you have a large organization um, administering royalties in some form, um, there are inevitably uh, instances where, for whatever reason, that organization cannot pay or does not figure out how to pay the money that they've got to the right person. And, um, and historically, those monies were referred to in, in lots of different contexts as the black box, because it was as if the money sat in a box um, that, um, that had no lights on in it, and therefore no one could know um, what was in it or what data was it that they couldn't make those connections with. So um, the MLC has sought to illuminate the black box in the mechanical space, um, first and foremost, by making all of the data um, that relates to monies we can't pay visible to our members. So as I mentioned right before the break, we have a matching tool that allows members to search all of the unmatched royalty data that we have for any royalties that we could not connect to 
a songwriter or a publishing partner of theirs. By making all that data searchable, our members can now see all of the connections we were not able to make. And because we give them the ability to propose matches to songs they've registered, they have the ability to help us solve those missing matches um, where the songs um, are songs they've registered. So, you know, for us, that illumination is really important because it, it one, gives visibility to the problem, to all of the rights holders who might have a stake in the problem. And then second, we enlist the help of those stakeholders, um, those rights holders, to help solve the problem for their own benefit. Um, that's a very different approach than the one that historically um, the industry has taken. Historically, organizations didn't want to share the information at all and certainly weren't giving others uh, an ability to action the information, um, perhaps because they didn't want people to know that there was money they couldn't pay. Maybe they were worried about litigation risk. Maybe they're simply ashamed that they didn't do as good a job as they might like. Um, and all of those were understandable reasons. But the MLC, um, we certainly believe, and Congress agreed, because a lot of this is written into um, the law that uh, led to our creation, um, we and they believe that visibility is, is one of the key hallmarks of a better creating a better system. And so um, by giving members the ability to see that unmatched data, um, we're giving them the ability to see it and act on it. And that's what illuminates the black box. That's really cool. I really appreciate the community aspect, the fact that it's not just one large organization top down doing this or that, but that everyone's coming together to make this solution work. And we're not a large organization, right? We're, you know, 100 plus employees. We're a really small organization, um, especially relevant uh, relative to many of the organizations that that we serve. Um, So I think for all of us in the data space, this idea of letting um, more people see the data, and in particular, the folks who are ultimately um, looking to get paid, um, it's really important. And it does effectively um, bring everyone into the process. And um, we now have the ability to be more successful for any creator if they're willing to engage with us, use the tools and provide their perspective on what they see. Um, we think that's really powerful and, and really empowering because now creators have the chance to participate in driving successful outcomes for their own benefit. That is really cool. There's a lot involved, however, in this process um, and <laughs> a bigger a bigger community that maybe we should talk about here for a second. Um, you know, you've started paying out some of these unpaid royalties, and that's like a huge step forward. And I think a lot of people were really excited about that. But there's still some work to be done. Um, can we talk for a second about phono rates. Can you give us like a, a dummy's guide to what these phono rates are and why they come into the conversation about historically unpaid royalties? Sure. So uh, in the streaming space, the royalty rates um, ha- have been set on the mechanical side by a-, a board of three judges, copyright royalty judges based in Washington. They are known collectively as the Copyright Royalty Board. And, um, and they set those rates after hearing from the stakeholders um, involved with the rate setting process. So representatives of the digital services and then representatives of rights holders. Notably, the MLC does not participate in this process. Um, and, and that is something that um, Congress prescribed in the Music Modernization Act that we stay on the sidelines of that, um, that process um, between the different groups of rights holders. But, but that process has been setting the rates now for um, a number of years. Um, the, the 
the judges do that in five-year periods. So they set the rates for a five-year period. Um, the rates can change within that five-year period, but they're essentially setting them five years at a time. And um, those rate periods are known as phono records and then a number. So phono records one was the first rate period that they set. Phono records two was the second. Phono records three was the third. And this past January, we just kicked off phono records four. The I was wondering why this year felt so much more festive. <laughs> yes. yes. And in fact, just last month, um, we paid out royalties at the new phono four rates for the first time. Um, those rates were a marked improvement over the, the rates that we had been applying, which interestingly were the phono two rates. I'll get back to that in a moment. <laughs> okay. um, so rights holders, um, any member of the MLC that received royalties from us last month, um, likely saw a, a noticeable jump or bump up in the royalties they received because we were now applying these most recent and higher rates. But the um, the issue with the Phono Records 3 rate period is that the digital services, um, after the CRB initially issued the rates, appealed. Um, they had the right to do that, but they appealed. Um, that appeal went up to a federal court of appeals. The court of appeals decided that there were certain aspects of the initial um, ruling by the CRB that were problematic. So they essentially vacated the rates and remanded the process back to the CRB. And unfortunately, sitting here today, um, uh, four or five months into the Phono 4 rate period, we still do not have final rates for the Phono 3 period, i.e. the last five years of rates. Um, so that is, um, I think, by every measure, um, not, not ideal in any way. Um, I think all the parties involved in the rates would agree, but it's it's particularly um, devastating for songwriters and their partners, publishers and administrators, because what it means is that those folks have not been getting paid at the correct rates for the last five years. They've been getting paid royalties, but um, for the MLC as an example, for the last two years, we've been paying out royalties um, at the Phono 2 rates because those were the last set of rates that had been finalized. Um, not what will become the Phono 3 rates once those rates are finalized. So um, to have that lack of uncertainty for that long a period of time has been really difficult for rights holders, first and foremost. And then for organizations like the MLC that have to administer rights, it becomes challenging because um, it means that we'll have to go back and revise all of the reporting that we've done thus far um, through the end of last year to reflect those final rates once they are finalized. Um, and it also means that for the last three years of the historical royalties we received, the rates for those royalties have not yet been finalized. So the DSPs are going to have to redo all the reporting for those last three years of historical royalties as well. So lots of um, redoing of work yeah. or um, an inability to move forward with work because of that uncertainty in the rates for that third rate period. I got you. So basically, in short, there's going to be some heroic accountants out there. And, <laughs> and those yeah. people need some hugs coming up pretty soon here. Yeah, a lot of people are going to be doing a lot of work shortly. The, yeah. the hope is that those rates get finalized soon. Um, because even when once they're finalized, the services will still have uh, six months to deliver revised data and revised payments. So it's it's not as if the day that the rates are finalized and that um, you know that final determination is issued, uh, everything immediately moves forward. There's still going to be quite a bit of time, though. Um, once we know um, the rates are finalized, then the timeline or the countdown begins, and um, 
you know, we, the MLC, can continue to do everything possible to prepare for that moment when we have the final rates, the final data, and then we can begin making those corrections um, as soon as possible. Um, but I, I do want to add that the impact on the historical has been difficult because um, even though the historical unmatched monies we received dated back as far as 2007, and for, for all of those periods back to 2007, the total amount that we received was $427 million. The overwhelming majority of that money actually related to uses that took place in the three years before the blanket took effect, mm -hmm. so 2018, 19, and 20. And the uses for those three years that the DSPs passed over to us totaled about $373 million. Wow. So, so most of the money um, that we received is actually caught up in this issue related to the phone or three rates. And that's prevented us from um, moving forward to pay out the royalties um, from that portion that we can match. So we've been paying out matched royalties from the older periods, 2007 to 2017. We've made great progress, paid out about 35% of the 53 million from that period, just about $20 million in total. Um, and there's still more coming, um, but that's a relatively small portion of the total that we received. That makes sense. And I hope that everyone who's listening could follow along at home and maybe even <laughs> you should definitely check out the MLC's website for some of their uh, diagrams and infographics because it really does help to see it visually. So I'm going to let everyone digest for a minute and try to uh, uh, process all of that really important information. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. As music tech people, sometimes it's hard to stay up to date on the relevant news. We're excited to announce that our curated newsletter for Music Tech News, Rock Paper Scanner, has officially gone public. Sign up to receive a weekly curated news feed of industry context, Web3 and AI, industry revenue, cool tools, and more when you sign up today. Go to pages.rockpaperscissors.biz scanner. That's pages.rockpaperscissors.biz scanner. Or Visit musictectonics.com and find this episode's blog post for a quick link. And now, back to the episode. Okay, we're back here with Chris, the CEO of the MLC. And now, uh, listeners, I think we're going to have we're going to break away from our deep dive into the uh, exciting world of royalty payouts and administration, which is a, something very, very important we all need to know about. But I think I'm hoping, uh, Chris, that we can talk a bit more about some of what you do that relates directly to music innovation and the people who are uh, in you know creating all these cool new ways to listen to music, but who would love to be in a good, solid uh, standing with the industry. So, Let's talk for a second in general about music innovation and how the MLC plays into that. How do you usually start talking to startups or to companies who want to launch a new product or service that relates in some way, shape, or form to digital mechanicals? Well, hopefully they give us a call um, <laughs> and get in touch Step one. early in the process. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I say that because you know there are a number of things that are really important for a startup service to understand before they launch. Uh, the first one is make sure you understand the statutory and regulatory requirements that are going to apply to your business, not only before you start operating, but but early enough in the process so that you can contemplate the costs um, and the steps that you'll need to take to comply. 
And um, as any um, lawyer will know um, uh, who works in this space, um, that's not um, simple or straightforward. So making sure you have a handle on those requirements um, as soon in your business planning as possible, I think is really important. Um, we have a, a great DSP resources page on our website. Um, we also have a DSP relations team that is available to talk with services that might be thinking of starting uh, a new service that um, will operate under the blanket license. So um, checking out that DSP resources page on our website or um, and reaching out to us to tell us a little bit more about your service, those are great steps. The real key again is time. And um, often in the startup world, uh, companies are moving at a sprint pace to, uh, to get to launch. Um, and, and of course, that makes lots of sense. They're excited. Um, they've got limited amount of resources. And so they've got to get to that point where they are um, operating and can begin to generate revenue as soon as possible. Um, but what we find is that it can take as much as six months for a service to get um, everything they need to um, set up with us and working before they begin making music available um, in part because the requirement to account to the MLC begins, um, you know, within a couple of weeks after the end of their first month of operations. Okay. So, so that's what you need to think about is, hey, I'm launching on July 1st. Great. Um, you're going to have to send reporting data and royalties to the MLC as early as August 15th hmm. um, and no later than September 15th. So once you get past the rush of your launch date, then you are immediately going to have to get a lot of information and all your payments to us really quickly. And if you don't, um, the risk you run is you could have your blanket license terminated um, before you've gotten up and running very long. And once that blanket license is terminated, you are barred by law from securing it again for three years. Wow. So it's just really important that you as a startup get, get all of this set up, um, know what you need to do ahead of time, and, uh, and not leave that for the last minute. I think that's really helpful advice. And I know it's difficult advice sometimes for startups with the way they work, but it sounds like basically you've, you've got your idea sketched out on a napkin. Give the MLC a call. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and maybe more importantly, get, get a really competent lawyer who's experienced in dealing with the requirements that, that will apply to your business. Um, the MLC can't give you as a service legal advice. We don't do that. We certainly try to explain how the process works, but but you really need uh, legal counsel um, and business counsel um, advising you on what you need to do, and also how to think about the interplay between the functionality you envision mm -hmm. and then the rights that you'll need or the reporting you'll need. Um, sometimes when you start up a business, you know it's easy to get caught up with all the different things you can do, and yet each type of service offering um, will require separate reporting to us and. Um, and that will make the reporting process more complicated. So you may be better off as a startup company picking a single service offering, a single type of service, um, rather than five or six different types mm -hmm. of services, and then growing your business, expanding your service offerings over time. If you launch with all of them right out of the gate, you're setting a much higher bar um, in terms of the degree of difficulty that, that you're going to have to manage and master again, in order to fulfill those obligations. So, so really start with a really good lawyer who knows how this all works, who's advised a service uh, like the one you're planning before, uh, and in that respect can advise you from a position of knowledge rather than um, a position where they, like you, are looking at these requirements for the first time and trying to understand what they mean. Cool. That's great advice. 
Another aspect of music innovation um, that we're seeing a lot of are, I would call them non-traditional distributors or distribution channels. So it could be creator tools, um, platforms where people can, you know, that are like basically function as an online DAW, a digital audio workstation, where people can make music sort of start to finish and then even distribute it commercially. So if I want to add distribution on to, um, to my platform or if, you know, and a lot of times people work with a B2B service, but say I want to make sure I've got all my ducks in a row, what do I need to think about if I'm adding distribution onto uh, an, another service or product in terms of the MLC's needs? Sure. Well, as a distributor um, or someone that's doing distribution, you'll be working with the digital services directly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you won't necessarily be working with the MLC directly unless as a part of your service offering, you are offering some form of publishing administration. Mm-hmm. And, and that is increasingly a common offering for uh, sound recording distributors. They add uh, offer as an add-on publishing administration. And it makes sense, right? Because many of these um, distribution platforms are aimed at DIY creators, um, creators who both write songs and perform. So um, being able to offer them solutions for all the rights that they control uh, makes sense. Um, but it's only if they're offering that publishing admin that they're going to deal directly with the MLC in, a first, in the first instance. And they would do so as a member of the MLC, just like any other publisher or administrator. But for the distributors on the sound recording side, the, the thing that I think is imperative, and, and certainly it's something that we're, um, we're trying to um, raise um, the visibility on, is uh, how imperative it is for those platforms, those distribution platforms, to collect accurate and complete information, not only about the sound recording and the sound recording performers on the sound recording, but also the writers and the publishing mm-hmm. information for the songs. Without that information about the writers and the song, the rest of us in the value chain wind up playing catch up. We essentially try to fill in the missing gaps. Now, that might be um, more easy if the song, uh, the sound recording that's being distributed is a cover of a famous song. But imagine if you're um, using one of these platforms and uh, you're making music at home um, with a few friends and your music has not been up before. You know, you're, you're, you're like every band that, you know, those of us who played music started with. You, you were in the garage, in the basement, um, in the backyard, um, and no one knows about you other than a few of your friends. Well, that song that you recorded, if you wrote it, there's no way that anyone else in the value chain is going to know you as a writer unless you tell us. So if you put that sound recording into the market without identifying yourself as the writer in a situation where you wrote the song, it will be nearly impossible for us to ever figure out who wrote the song. Um, So you really do yourself a disservice if you're not putting that information out there um, when it's you that is the writer. And then, you know, for the covers, you want to make sure that those those great writers that you are honoring by covering the song um, get credit for the thing you've done. So um, that, to me, is the imperative, making sure that the data that that you put into the market is accurate and complete. If you're running the distribution platform, um, make sure you're asking and hopefully requiring your customers to do that. And if you're a customer of those platforms, make sure you're doing it um, because it's the right thing to do and it's the way that the rest of the process will work much more smoothly and effectively for you if you're a writer and for your um, your icons 
and your heroes uh, if you are covering someone else's song. I think there's a lot to be said for the uh, benefits of the creator economy when we all are better versed in how music publishing works and music metadata works. So there's a there's a huge amount of of improvement to be made there because so many people come to making music from very different practices, whether they you know they were TikTokers or they were you know they had a YouTube channel and just wanted to make their own music. I can think of a couple young folks that recently had charting hits that came to music that way. So I think this is a really valuable piece of information that all creators need to keep in mind. Anyway, enough lecturing. I'm preaching to the choir here, but... Um, well, you are, but I, I do want to say um, we have a, a great infographic on our website. We often use this now as the sort of visual framework for entire programs, um, but it, it describes the digital royalties landscape mm -hmm. and it shows those indep independent creators the four different ways they get paid just when their music is made available on digital audio platforms. So um, an infographic like that, I think, is a really helpful way for a creator who is listening to this to um, get a little bit more up to speed on all the different ways they get paid. And, uh, and just as you said, Trista, I think it's so true. Learning that and getting a handle on that ahead of time before you have your first hit is so much better mm -hmm. than waiting until after. Yeah. Like once once you've, your career has taken off, once you have that first viral moment or that first hit, now you're playing catch up and you're playing catch up with real money that's yours. It's far better to understand how all this works, get yourself set up, know that you are um, receiving or in a position to receive all the money you might make before your first success. So when that first success happens, you can focus on um, continuing to promote your music, engaging with your fans, um, doing all the things you need to do to become a successful creator um, and not chasing the details um, on the business side. So I think we should definitely link to that infographic in the show notes. That sounds like a really good introduction to anyone who's listening to this who really wants to see it rather than hear it talked about. So let's let's open things up a little bit, Chris. I'm curious in general, and it doesn't have to be about Oh, legislation, policy, royalties, <laughs> rights administration, any of those things. What changes or trends in the music business are you saying that excite you most? What things, when you read about them, even if they're not directly related to what you do, get you to go, wow, that's so cool? Well, I, I do think one of the first things that I think is cool is the fact that the industry is so much more accessible to creators than it's ever been. Um, when I talk with creators, I often talk about how as a kid I was in bands and uh, the only way that anyone in the world would ever have heard a song that I wrote or performed is if they were sitting with me in my car when I put the cassette into the cassette player because that was as far as your music went. You know, you, None of us had access to the global music market um, when we were um, amateurs or aspiring. Mm -hmm. um, it, was, it was only when you got signed, whether it be to a publisher or to a record company, um, that your music got into the market for the first time. So I think it's incredible now that millions of creators have access to the global market um, because that that brings much more music um, potentially into the light where you know fans can listen to it and discover your music um, and you as a creator. So I, I think that's a great development. I think you know right along with that, the fact that these digital services have, essentially unlimited shelf space, right? In a digital market, um, there's no limit on the number of things you can offer. 
Um, what's also gone away to some degree is the sort of bin mentality that used to exist in a record store where you'd go to a record store and there was a bin for rock and there was a bin for classical and a bin for jazz and maybe a, a bin for folk or um, R&B or hip hop. But these bins were based on general descriptions of genres that the folks selling music thought would help you find what you wanted. Um, but the problem was, well, what happened if you were known as a rock artist, but you decided you wanted to make a country artist, a country album? Or what if you were a hip hop artist and you wanted to um, make something instrumental? The, the bins became limiting and, um, and forced artists to put their music into a box, right? I am this, my music is this. I think today what we see is this extraordinary, extraordinary um, shift away from characterization where people can make the music that moves them in the first instance and not worry about the labels that, um, that others might put on it. And, uh, and that I think is really exciting. You, you've got you know, artists coming from all different parts of the world who are making music that is inspired by other artists from all over the world. And in the first instance, they're not asking themselves, what genre am I writing for? Mm -hmm. Which writing? They're just creating. And, um, and even though there are still maybe places where the industry puts uh, a label on the music um, or there might be some benefit to that, I think more often than not, what you're seeing is artists that defy that characterization in some really exciting ways. So as a music fan and a musician, that's something that I think that I find incredibly exciting. Yeah. And um, when people ask me, like, what kind of music do you like? It's like, well, I like lots of different types of music. Good music. music. Yeah, I don't feel like <laughs> I have to even answer that question yeah. with, um, with a name on a bin anymore because the, the names are far less relevant. So how do you answer that question? I like to say I like all different kinds of music, and that's true. And now in this job, what's wonderful is I meet so many different songwriters um, who are writing so many different types of music. Um, I... I I'm constantly, um, you know, discovering new music that I may not have otherwise simply by um, looking up after I speak with someone their their songs on a service and then giving it a listen. So yeah. if you're a songwriter and we happen to meet, know that I, I'm pretty um, pretty religious about trying to listen to one or two of your songs um, either before we talked or after we did, just so I can get a better sense of who you are as a creator. And it's a really exciting way for me to to discover more music. That's really the best part of about jobs like in the music business is eventually you just get to listen to music and talk to other people who like to listen and make music, listen to and make music. So it's, it's, that's incredible. Well, I, I have to agree the, the cross pollination between different people and the, the lack of bins, as you put it, which is a great way to put it, um, is really interesting. I, I mean, I, I get a lot of feedback from certain younger listeners. I have a very small sample size, but still, um, you know, and it really seems like what we used to think of as genres is becoming more of a meme or a vibe almost. And it's really more about completely a completely other set of categories that, you know, that make a listener judge like, I like this or I don't like this or whatever they connect with emotionally is what they like. So it's very interesting. Thanks, Chris, for taking the time to share all your thoughts and efforts with us. It was my pleasure. Thanks, Christian. Thanks for listening to Music Tectonics. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We have new episodes for you every week. Did you know we do free monthly online events that you, our lovely podcast listeners, can join? Find out more at musictectonics.com. 
And while you're there, look for the latest about our annual conference and sign up for our newsletter to get updates. Everything we do explores the seismic shifts that shake up music and technology, the way the Earth's tectonic plates cause quakes and make mountains. Connect with Music Tectonics on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. That's my favorite platform. Connect with me, Dimitri Vitsa, if you can spell it. We'll be back again next week, if not sooner. You're listening to Music Tectonics.